Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Susan Olasek, founder of the Enneagram Prison Project and the Human Potentialists. We discuss this powerful psychological system and the ways in which we all live behind bars in our own minds. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. And I just feel that people, I now I have so much more perspective, but at the time even I felt people who have already had so much adversity in their life, that's a big precursor to how people get behind bars. And then when they're there, I feel like that's the time to heal. But we have such a, dif- a different mindset in our country and other countries do the same and such a punitive one. And that didn't, that's not how I, I am organized inside. That's not what feels right in me. And so I think right away, I saw, I saw how things could be different, but I also saw just the power of this tool in people's hands who were really starving to understand what was wrong in their lives and thinking there was something wrong with them. And, and I just think my approach to the Enneagram is that there's nothing wrong with any of us. Enneagram is a map to show us what's so right about us. And it felt like the, the most profound place to be figuring out how to teach it, which is what I was doing. So says Susan Olasek, founder of the Enneagram Prison Project, a nonprofit dedicated to sharing the power of self-awareness education using the Enneagram system with those who have been imprisoned around the globe. An unapologetic idealist and an Enneagram type one, for those who are familiar with the system, Susan joins me today to share her compassionate approach to the Enneagram, honed over 15 years of engaging with Fortune 500 executives, corporate teams, schools, and those experiencing incarceration. She recently founded The Human Potentialists, a benefit corporation with a vision to democratize the Enneagram and whose mission is guiding people to their highest potential while connecting them to the core of our shared humanity. She views the Enneagram as an insightful tool meant to guide all of us to our highest potential, convinced that people are inherently good and encouraging us to see the possibilities that lie beyond our personality. As a fellow type one, I agree with her. Susan takes us through the potential and pitfalls of each Enneagram type, reminding us that it is vulnerable work to look deeply at ourselves in order to see and break free from the prison of our design. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Let's start at the beginning. Obviously, I know more about you than listeners, but you're one of my favorite Enneagram people and thinkers. And obviously, Enneagram Prison Project is 
pretty stunning, I think, in what you guys do and the idea, the bigger metaphor of the ways in which we all live behind bars. Can you tell us how you came to the Enneagram? And then will you also give us an overview of, I know you love Riso and Hudson, and there are lots of sort of more academic sources for Enneagram, but will you run people through sort of your view of the nine types? Of course, of course. I learned the Enneagram when I was a new mom, and I I have always been a seeker, always on a path, always wanting to improve myself and the world and anyone in my field. And I honestly started to get really angry when I got pregnant and I didn't even know it. It was like all of a sudden something just sort of was, wasn't just simmering anymore. It was like, it was coming out and I'm not saying I was some raging lunatic, but sometimes, I mean, I remember when I was eight months pregnant, pulling some guy over on the side of the road, not really, but he'd cut me off. And then he had the sad misfortune of ending up at the same stoplight with me. And I, I told him to put his window down. And he did. And I read in the riot act because he was so dangerous and I was carrying something that was so precious. And that's just the way that I can connect it in my mind. Anyway, I, I, and I started to have my family. I I just, I cared more about being a good mom than I think I've ever cared about anything. And that's really in the personality of, of type one, which is the one that I work with and sometimes that I lead from. And I was raising my kids for a little bit and I, I really felt so much tension in me and I felt like I really wanted to be, I wanted to do well by them. I wanted to do right in their mothering and in my partnering. And so I found my way into a parenting class. She was a brand new Enneagram teacher who, who had three kids of her own. And we started to use the tool as a way to understand our own lens and, and then also to understand different kids needed different things. And I always intuitively knew that the Enneagram really precisely named that for me in a way that honestly took me a while to understand. I'm not somebody that I wouldn't call myself an academic, and I'm really glad the Enneagram doesn't change, but I've always been a lover of people, and it started to make sense to me very gradually. And yeah, then that that was just the beginning. And then how did you start working in prisons? Well, I... I got invited. I I went to that parenting class for 10 years and we just kept at it. And I did it in that sort of informal way that a mom of three kids, I have three boys that are mostly all grown now would do. And eventually I decided to get certified because it really felt like something I wanted to eventually do something with. I had been in human resources and then I had been an at-home parent. So I certified and within, I think within two months, I got invited to teach in a little prison just outside of Houston, Texas, an entrepreneurship program. And I said, yes, because I'm somebody that just really feels like when something feels aligned and it felt like it felt like such a good idea. So it wasn't my idea to bring the Enneagram into prison, but I, I went and I, when I stepped in that door, everything in my body said, not like this. This is not how we heal. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a super max prison. It was a very cushy prison. I think a lot of people who've done a lot of time might say private prison, low security, people were on their way out. They were already worked very hard to get into the program that I was supporting. And, and yet it had all the, the feel of prison in it and the, the Sally port and the clanging of the doors and the yellow lines and, and all that. And I just feel that people 
I now I have so much more perspective, but at the time, even I felt people who have already had so much adversity in their life, that's a big precursor to how people get behind bars. And then when they're there, I feel like that's the time to heal, but we have such a, dif a different mindset in our country and other countries do the same and such a punitive one. And that didn't, that's not how I, I am organized inside. That's not what feels right in me. And so I think right away, I saw, I saw how things could be different, but I also saw just the power of this tool in people's hands who were really starving to understand what was wrong in their lives and thinking there was something wrong with them. And, and I just think my approach to the Enneagram is that there's nothing wrong with any of us. Enneagram is a map to show us what's so right about us. And it felt like the, the most profound place to be figuring out how to teach it, which is what I was doing. Yeah, I love that about the Enneagram. There's so much appeal to every, and I know when people sort of maybe go to do their ready Enneagram test, and then they read about the other, the other Enneagram types, there's like type envy, you know, where you're sort of like, oh, that sounds amazing. And that sounds amazing. Like, it's such a beautiful system. I know we, we have our vices or tendencies or those parts of ourselves that need to be balanced. But it's such a generous, loving, psychological tool, I think, because I don't know. I mean, I, ones I know are taught. I'm sure that we all have our own, people who know the Enneagram have sort of like their own, I guess, biases really about other Enneagram types and their tendencies. But I feel like most people have Enneagram pride, right? When they see themselves reflected back in in their type. I think that the way you just framed that beautiful question says so much about your own type, Elise, which I happen to, you know, know. Are you going to let your listeners know? That's not going to surprise anyone. I won. Okay. And I feel like the ones are here to teach the rest of us about goodness. And I call type one the idealist. Some people use other terms, but I, I think there really is so much that one C is what's possible. And that is, I think, what the Enneagram is illustrating, what's possible in all of us. And really what's been there from the beginning, the essential qualities is, is the thing that we always are and, and doesn't change. What, what changes is what we put around that. And that is the, the personality. And I think a really healthy developed person sees the best in everyone because they feel the best in themselves. And so that's that it's nice to hear you frame it that way. I don't think everybody always does. And I think oftentimes, and I feel this for myself, for sure, I come across parts of my personality structure that have names for them. And, you know, they plot nicely all around a diagram. I mean, they're so patterned, we're predictable, and we can put it down like that. And I can still cringe at the fact that I, my type, type one, is what we call an anger type, along with eight and one. We're in the anger triad. In the beginning, I was like, I didn't, I didn't want to be angry for anything. Mm -hmm. And I really believed I wasn't. I, I believed I was frustrated or maybe that there were some idiots out there or what have you, but I wasn't angry. And that's the beginning of the work is to see where are the places where we actually feel resistance because the resistance is, is where we need the map to say, well, what is it that we're not opening to? Yeah. Because the truth is just what you say that there are so many beautiful types, actually nine of them, all of them, all nine are beautiful all the way around the circle, which is the beginning of the Enneagram. The, the fact that we are all on that circle and we're all aspects of each other. And there's this unity, you know, consciousness that we're aspiring to be long ourselves to, but 
there's a moment where we say, yeah, but not that, but mm-hmm. not that. And then we're, we're in the duality and yeah. that's then So then the work can begin. So I feel like some, it's a long answer to what you said, but I, I, it's beautiful I though. It's, Cause I, I also, it took me a long time to acknowledge my anger, which I carry sort of in my clenched jaw. Yeah. And I have so much shame about my anger because as a type one idealist, also rigid, perfectionistic, controlling, you know, wanting to believe everything can be in its highest form all the time to acknowledge that I actually have very little control and that the world does not conform to my what I believe it can and should be. That's a really that's a hard lesson. And to state needs is is difficult in a body or in a personality where I'm like, aren't they just evident? Shouldn't we know how to service each other's needs? All those things. But I'll tell you, here's the thing about the anger. And I learned this from one of my teachers, Russ Hudson, who wrote the Wisdom of the Enneagram book. And Russ said one time, you know, you can say a lot of things about ones. You can say type ones are judgmental and, and perfectionistic and all those lists that you just went through, Elise, but you can never say about a one that they don't care. And when he said that, everything that was ready to fight in me just relaxed. And that's just such sage teaching because really the anger is an intelligence and the anger is in service of something that we care about. That's why I was angry when I got pregnant because I had this precious human being inside of me. And all of a sudden my focus of attention was how dare we not take care of each other, right? The way I was so, you know, in my mothering, wanting to take care of this child. And so I think that that's really our tell in the beginning. We, when we look at the diagram, it divides nicely into triads in lots of ways. And anger is one triad. The anger is the, 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 the emotional alarm, if you will, for the body types who are the eight, nine, and one. And the, yeah. the belly types, we also call them. The belly is, is where the instinct comes from, right? And one of the most fundamental instincts is anger because anger is the thing that's telling me, am I getting what I need? Am I getting what I want? Is it fair? Is it right? Is it aligned? Like you said, you know, we have these ways that we're ordered when, when we're out of order, it really, it jars us and that's a good thing. And so mm-hmm. actually anger is not the problem. It's what we do with mm-hmm. the anger. And I think the young one gets this idea really early on that's just not okay to be angry. And well, women get that answer. idea. And Sorry? women. Did you say, yeah, oh, yeah. Women. Sure. And so it's you, I've heard you say, David, about, talk about David White and his, him saying anger is the deepest form of care and compassion. And culturally, I mean, it's interesting to think about it. If, if ones are idealists or trying to hold people, hold the world to a standard that's achievable and in its wholeness and anger might be actually the tool or the mechanism for, you know, righteous indignation around where we are failing each other and ourselves. Maybe it's essential that we actually use our anger instead of being shamed out of expressing it. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the invitation from the tool is to say, when am I, when am I using the anger and when have I actually given up my own agency? And when am I, when am I disempowering myself by letting the anger run me instead of inform me? And I think the, the Enneagram actually is a tool of self-empowerment. It's a, it's a way to let us, to see the, 
the specific places where we've given up our own power and to take emotional responsibility for what's ours and to actually reckon with what's what's not. And for us, type ones and all the type ones out there, you know, the serenity prayer is really the whole, the whole thing. I think that is a, a one's prayer that God give me the serenity to accept the things that I can't change and the courage to change the things that I can. And the, the, the real kicker, I think that whole thing is the wisdom to know the difference and the anger mm. is the wisdom. So let me know, when is it not that? And when it, when is something being actually taken care of perfectly well by something much bigger than me? And when is this my, my thing to pick up and, and do something with? So I think all the way back to your question, when I stepped into prison, I felt like there was a lot that wasn't being handled right. <laughs> and there was something that I could do about it. And my journey over the last 10 years of growing an Egram prison project is to figure out the difference and to, to know when to cease and to trust and to know when I need to keep moving forward. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at FrameBridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit FrameBridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's FrameBridge.com. Will you take us through your, the Susan take on the other types? I'm so happy to. I love this start. I always start with type eight on the Enneagram because I feel like 
well, it's how I was taught, and also how I feel that eights have enough energy to propel us around the whole diagram. And I'm a, anyone who's out there in your eights, you know, I have a particular fondness for this type. And um, eights come to teach the rest of us about being alive. And I think eights are here to impact the world, and they also want to be impacted by it. And they, they really, the eights that I know, they're really up for it all. They want the real deal and they want to feel it all. I have eights that say like, you know, my, my type eight son, when he was small, he would say, mommy, hug me hard, but I'll hug you soft, right? Like there's a teddy bear inside type eights, but they, they like it direct. They, they have that energy and they bring with them a formidable heart, just so much intensity of love, intensity for loss, intensity for creativity and joy. When, when eights are present to that, that essential thing that is, is me, if I'm an eight, then, then that's what we feel. We feel their magnanimity and we feel their, a lot of times their exuberance. And when they're not present, there's sort of a, you know, there's like a cutting off of my own heart. That's what, that's what happens is when we're developing, if we don't get these essential qualities mirrored to us, then we contract and we, we don't want to leave with them anymore because it isn't safe. And everybody gets this idea somewhere along the way that it's not okay to be me. And you don't have to have a terrible childhood to have that experience. Like any normal <laughs> dysfunction will do. It, an eight might get that experience, does get that. And um, when we contract like that, then we still have to function. So then the imitation of that, you know, beautiful aliveness that eights bring is, is the ego. That's the, that's the fake version, right? And so eights then start, when they lose that contact, they start to sort of insist on things and push for what I want and deny what other people want in my way or the highway. And that's not the same thing as this strength, this immediacy that eights just naturally bring when they're, when they're truly safe enough to be who they are. And when eights can come back to who they are, then they lead with some, a different kind of strength. They lead with a, a fierce vulnerability. They say things that are so disarming because they're so real and honest, but without all the other, you know, push around it, that's very innocent actually, and quite powerful. Mm. I love that. What's their anger equivalent? Love, they are an anger type. They are an anger type. And okay. the passion for type eight, and maybe that's the word you're looking for is, yeah. is lust, this, lust. this lustful, I guess something's good, more must be better, you know, Got it. have all of it. And in fact, let's annihilate the things that, you know, it's very black and white for type eight. It's, it's like all or nothing. And, and that can be, you know, the whole range of how, how healthy of, of a person am I? Because one of the big contributions of Russ Hudson and, and his writing partner, Don Riso for years ago was these different levels of health. And my frame of the Enneagram is often around the, that textbook, the wisdom of the Enneagram. So if I'm really healthy, then you're going to see I'm lustful. Yes. And I, I do like the all or nothing, but it might be like, I want all of the, uh, all of justice and I want all of peace too. And I want all of love and all of those positive things. Mm, so. I love it. And type nines are right next door to type eight. We call type nine the peacemaker, sometimes the mediator. And nines come to teach the rest of us about being. It's just a, a, a healthy nine is just has this very relaxed, grounded way of being. And I'm often sitting looking out my window when I'm talking like this on a podcast and I can see three redwood trees. And I think the nine really feels like a redwood, just deeply rooted, grounded, especially in nature, I think nines like that. There's a, a way that nines know everything belongs. And there's like from the tiniest creature to, to all of us human beings, there's 
there's a sense of wholeness when there's, when there's room for all of the diversity of us. And nines really appreciate that. They value that. They, they notice that and they inform that. They can balance things out with their own energy and they know how to bring, bring people back into the fold. They're incredibly diplomatic. And I think nines just know that the whole is truly stronger than the, the sum of its parts. And so there's this really amazing capacity that they have. And, and yet when I'm not present, if I am a nine, right, if I don't feel like there's room for me, if I somehow get that impression that I, I do that contraction and the imitation of that is sort of this self-forgetting, this way of minimizing myself and feeling like I have to make, make it okay for me, for everybody else to be here. And I might leave myself out of that circle. And so with, with presence, nines can just come back to that and, and sort of take up my right seat in, in all of it, because the ego of the nine is, is not including myself. That's the egotistical move. Nines actually have so much room for everybody else more than any other type. That's their, that's their gift. Mm. My husband's a nine and I, isn't the passion sloth? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and sloth is a, is a, it's a sleepiness to myself, right? It's a self forgetting. And we're also self-forgetting. So nine is kind of like a prototype for all the other types. And they have, they have such a way of reflecting all the other types in them. That's how they are so easy to get along with. And I, I often tell this story. I, I have a type nine in my life too, which is my oldest son. And he's, he's 20, turning 25 now. So this is an old story. I, I remember so many times growing up, he would have, you know, holding his basketball shoes with his backpack half open, half, half open, his phone in his pocket, playing the music, headphones flying, and he was ready to walk out the door. And if I could, if I called his name and say, hey, Brooks, he would, you know, let go of the door, close it, come all the way back around the other part of the kitchen and stand in front of me and say, yeah, like he's got time. There's room for everyone. And, and yet, of course, what has he forgotten? Everything he's rushing out the door for, for himself. And so what's really beautiful for type nines is when they start to value themselves as much as, not more than, but just as much as everybody else so that I include me. And that's what, that's the essence of the type is, is how we feel in their presence. And when nines feel that for themselves, I mean, that's, you're a sucker for a nine. You married one. I married one. Two, the helper, right? Yeah. Type two is also called the giver. Sometimes they come to teach the rest of us about love and I think twos are, you know, they're the nurturers, the caretakers on the planet. They, they feel other people attuned to other people. And I think they're really a conduit for love. They're in a different triad. Now we moved out of eight, nine, one and eight, two, three, and four are in the heart triads. So this is the emotional operating system. They're, they're feeling with their hearts and they're trying to figure out what do other people need? And they have their way that they're organized helps them to pay attention to those things. And then that's really an asset to be able to know and appreciate how we're treating each other. And then they model that for each other. So twos are altruistic and they're generous and they're, they're loving and can be very, very compassionate. And if I, if I don't feel connected, right, it, I, for whatever reason, I contract against those. And the imitation of that is trying to be helpful, efforting at figuring out what other people need so that I can fill it. And it's, it's the str more strategic way of being. And that's not the same thing as just showing up with my open heart. And it's like a, a little bit of a, of a version of the nine, right? Like wanting to know what my own needs are so that I can put my own oxygen mask on and, and take care of other people. 
And when I do that, twos are, you know, incredibly available to themselves and to know that nurturing me is also a way of, of taking care of you. And I'm part of this whole, you know, I call it like a divine reciprocity, essential flow of giving and receiving. And I'm, I'm participating in that. Mm. What is their passion? Pride. Pride. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like pride is like this sort of inflated sense of my own, the, the, the idea that I could, I could help everyone. It's not unlike the type one where like, I feel like I could, you know, so, uh, save the whole world and tell everybody that it's, it's, it's the ego, right? Thinking that I could do all of that, but need nothing. And so mm-hmm. it's very deflating when I'm not needed sometimes because I, the work of the two is to be with my own self mm-hmm. and to be with my own needs so that I can sense that reciprocity, because as soon as I'm out of whack with that, then I'm, it's an imbalance, right? Nobody wants to just be receiving or, or only to be in the giving. Yeah, makes sense. Type three, are they the achievers? Type three is the, we call it performer, sometimes the doer, and, and threes come to teach the rest of us about, about love and in their own way, they're in the heart center. And, and I think what they're, they're after, I think threes are very hopeful. And there's a, there's a real preciousness in this type. They, they come to teach about value because in their heart of hearts, type threes know that they can be whatever they need to be, whatever they want to be, whatever's needed in the world. And my father is a type three. And I remember growing up, my dad would always say to us exactly that. You can be whatever you want to be. And I think he really believed that. And so that's one of the ways that threes can infuse what's in them into other people. Sometimes we call three the motivator because they, they really do have a way of seeing the light in other people and, and sort of organically seeing what other people need to do in order to be all that they can be. And there's an inherent knowing in, in the heart. That's where this is making sense, I think, in the three of the inherent value that I am just because of who, just because of my own being, not because of something that I've done or that I can, that I can muster up, but because that's just who I am. And that's true about all of us. So when threes really show up knowing their own value and their own worth, they, they put things in motion, they put their heart to work and they kind of know this is what I'm for. And, and I think when they're present to that, that's a beautiful, illuminating thing. There's like, we, we want to follow threes to make great leaders or often CEOs. And when I'm not connected to that, there's like that imitation of it, right? There starts to be that, again, an efforting, a trying to impress, perform, outdo, compete, because it's not coming from who I already am. It's thinking that I, I, I need to become more of that. And I hope you're starting to hear the pattern that the, the Enneagram is, is consistently the crazy thing about all of it is that we're all trying to be more of this thing that we inherently essentially already are yeah. beautifully, perfectly, amazingly. And threes are, are all that. So it's like, again, when we, when we recognize that and we can come back, then there's that, there's that contraction can relax. So the essence is just always the, the through line. And we're the ones that get in the way because we forget not just the nines, but all of us are so self-forgetting. And the passion for type three is this vanity, this, this thinking mm. that, you know, the world turns on my access and I can figure that out for everyone. It's not, it's not unlike some of these other passions that we're uncovering. <laughs> totally. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk 
What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention, when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com P-T-T. Fours are like our iconoclasts, right? Or I don't know what the official name is, but they're well, there's like so many names. Yes, it's a good one. And and for I call it the individualist, the romantic, and I do really love people. And I have a connection to four in, in my in the way the lines work on the Enneagram, and so do you. And also my bestie growing up has been a four. And so fours come to teach the rest of us about depth and meaning and beauty, really. I think fours really know, they want to know. Who, who we are and what we're all about. And with four, there's always a deeper meaning. And there is, if you, if you sit with things, things can always go deeper. But fours are really drawn to that. They, they are attuned to that in the heart. They understand the, the raw truths. They, are, they actually only want the, the real stuff of life. And you can hear that four sounds a little bit like an eight, they're lookalikes, but four is coming from the heart and eight is coming from the gut. Um, and fours are really naturally sharing from this place of authenticity. It's hard not to share from that place. I raised my children when they were young next to my, my best four. And I was shocked at the things that she would ask me and the things that she would say out loud. And I know a four who, who wrote a note to her parents when she was, before she was 10 about why they ought to get divorced. I mean, fours are really, they're so about the truth. And it's, and it's when it comes from a present you know, connected place. It's, it's, it's not like anything else. That's why these are such important qualities. Their passion. Yeah. Envy. Envy. Envy is not like jealousy. Envy is a, a different word for it is longing. Like mm-hmm. there's a sense of, I see 
what other people have. I see what you have and what you have reminds me that I don't have that. And if I only had what you have, then I would be more connected. So the, the young four gets this idea that I'm not, I'm not enough, right? In nine different ways, we're all getting that idea. And fours have a sense that other people have something that I don't have. And if I only had that thing, then I would know more of you know, who I am. And so the whole thing is a setup and pursuing this thing that when it shows up, you know, when I find that I'm actually, I, I am something in my mind, you know, it's, it's kind of a reckoning, like now who, who am I, if I'm not one who's seeking some, something that's true about me right now, but when that truth is here, I have to recognize this is the thing we're all trying to learn with the Enneagram is that I'm something beyond my personality, which is what the Enneagram is teaching us. Yeah. I will. I want to get to that. Let's talk. I want to talk about that, but we have we have another triad. Head triad, five, six, and seven. And fives are the investigator, the observer. Russ Hudson's a five, for those of you who know him, and I hope you'll listen to him. And I say that because they, they come to teach about clarity and knowledge. There's an illumination that fives bring. And they're here to figure out what's what in the world. And they really want to know what's under the surface. Only, I feel like only a four and a five could have, you know, divined that book that I keep referring to. They're really the investigators and they're holding stuff up to the light. They want to really know what's what. They examine and they probe. And that's that's why I think when something like the Enneagram, it's it's so attractive to fives because it it does really satisfy. It's so specific. It's so precise. It's so incisive. And and it tells us, it gives us a, so much different information. So when I have that and I can I can relax as a type five, when I'm I'm present, I have all these qualities of just being being able to bring such a sage set of wisdom to the world. And when I'm not I'm an imitation of those, of those qualities. I'm kind of a know-it-all and I tell everybody and I'm hoarding my information. And the essence is never the same thing as what we do with it in personality, but it, it sort of takes, you know, we take ourselves for that. And the passion for type five is avarice. So this like holding on to information. Yeah. Well, and as you know, I have tested as a five, not I tested as a one on the ready, the rest, rest Hudson, but that's, I had to come to you for clarification. You had to help me confirm my oneness, which I had always thought I was a one. So, but, and let's, we'll, we'll put a pin on that sort of the, well, the way that we can get it, confused. It makes sense. Yeah. It yeah. Looks cool. And it's okay to say it here too, because one and five resemble each other because there is that real competency with each of those types, actually one, three, and five are the competency types. And so they they seem like each other, but one, like you say, are really coming from the gut and five is coming from a cognitive center of intelligence. The way my, my mind is, is filtering things. And when my mind is clear and my mind and I'm present and open, I'm not clouded with all these facts. I'm just, there's something else quite different coming through me that I know. And it's not the same thing as what we're just, des- what we're describing when we're in the, in the fixated way of being. And so no, six and sense. seven are just versions of of five also the six we call the loyalist or sometimes the skeptic and six has come to teach the rest of us about waking up about our commitment and loyalty and one of my other teachers called six the guardians of humanity they show us really how to trust i think that's the the forte of the six there's a there's a real alertness inside of the six and they pay attention to things that other people are missing they're not even 
you know, their energy is not even going there. And so I, I'm not saying sixes are psychic, but kind of, right? We're all psychic and sixes have the sixth sense of what is really going on. And they will ask and they will say, and they will intuit. And when they do, this is powerful. And it's the, the kicker for the sixes, can I trust what I know, right? So if my mind is open and I'm really present, I can trust myself. And when I can't, that, that imitation of that is, I'm doubtful, I'm skeptical, I'm not so sure, I'm, I'm always double thinking and projecting out. And all of those are like the imitation version of the, of the six. Yeah. Is that passion fear? Yes, it is. And another word for that is angst. Mm. You know, just like the whole world's going to pot, everything, you know, it's, it's a bigger than, it's terror actually in this triad, five, six, and seven. And the sevens, I'm a, I'll, I'll just end with this as the epicure or the enthusiast. And I am a sucker for a seven because I married one. And the sevens <laughs> come to teach the rest of us about joy and about freedom. I think I call sevens a possibilitarian. And they're another one of the idealists, sevens and fours and ones are all idealistic, but seven is, is from the, you know, the possibility in, in, in the head center, right? Like seeing so far into the future and what's possible and they're, they're really spontaneous and they're versatile and they're creative and sevens just can really see the silver linings and things. And, and I, I always like to make sure that I punctuate this for seven when I, when I'm sort of not present when I contract, if I'm a seven, then the things I start to feel instead are sort of like, it has to be okay. And I'm efforting at making everything okay. And maybe I'm laughing louder than everybody else and telling too many jokes. <laughs> my, my husband and I have this joke of like, you're here, I need you here. You know, like he's just, he's, it's a lot. And that is only a reflection of something that I don't know is driving me. There's an anxiety or an underlying fear of something. And I've spent 25 years with with one special seven, who's also the executive director for Enneagram Prison Project. And he spent four day, five days with me in a, in a Belgian prison. And I had a translator the whole time. And I had always had somebody in my ear and you could feel the transformation that was going on in the room. It was powerful because people were really seeing things and unfolding. And at different times, I would see him just, just in, the, in the room and we were locked in a prison from morning, noon, and night. And they gave us croissants, but really, and he was tearful so many times. So the sevens, it's like, you know, we might come from the head or the gut or the heart, whatever. It doesn't mean that we don't have the other two centers available to us. So just wanted to end right. with that. And is the passion gluttony? Yes, the passion is gluttony. And, and the gluttony is, you know, kind of wanting, wanting to experience everything. And I think of it, I think Helen Palmer calls it like the stuffing of the mind and pushing, th- putting things in my head all, all the time because I, I feel that, I'm always afraid of missing out. And the young seven gets this idea that I, I could get stuck and trapped in something. And the, the way out of that is to just always be out here. But when the seven actually comes back inside, like all of us, the way out is in. If I can come in and tolerate all the things that I'm not doing, I can recognize something else has actually been going on the whole time. And my whole, my whole interiority is this playground. And then I'm, I'm able to resource so much more inside of myself. And that's really the true freedom that sevens are seeking. That's the paradox. Mm, thank you for that. That was beautiful. And again, I mean, they're all, they're all so juicy and wonderful. And is the goal, I mean, you've, you mentioned the word essence, personality. Is it not to become so affirmed, for example, in my oneness that I'm like operating from that as a, I can imagine how it can become a rut or a, um, 
in some ways, like a fallback of like, well, I'm a one. So therefore, like that explains my actions, period. Is right, it- can sort of justify. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it's such a trap to use our, our personality like that. It is true, right, that that the way that we're organized biologically and then the conditioning that we have, all those things that go into creating a personality in the first place, those those do create these almost a predisposition. And yet we all start in that in that really pure whole place. And we're all really more connected to each other than we think that we are. So I think as soon as we start operating with, from a justification, we've already lost track of the fact that we're really connected to something much, much bigger. And it's not, the idea is not to reaffirm my personality. It's about understanding the personality is a way of like the personality is the thing that shows up when I can't right? Because mm. more personality, the more of a buffer from that essence quality that we're really, we're, we're really more assured by when we're coming from that place. So once you're always good, and I, we just forget that and twos always come from love and, and threes have this natural value and fours really um, teach us about authenticity and, and on and on all the way around. And, and so I feel, I find, I mean, in Enneagram Prison Project, we run the organization and the whole through line is the Enneagram. So at any meeting that we're ever in, people have their type on their naming convention and we're checking in with each other from to sort of say, how here are you? We have a, a, a model that we use with that. And it's so constant how we forget that it takes that much practice. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Working in groups, both in prison and out, are people 
and I'm sure there's data about this, are people sort of evenly distributed around the Enneagram or are some types more rare? And then once you get that group awareness going, like in a prison, are people negotiating with each other? Along such those good axes. questions. These are great questions. <laughs> At least you have to come to prison with us, first of all. I would love to. Seriously, yes. let's figure Definitely. it out. Definitely. There are, I teach in a lot of different spaces, not just prison and jail, but in corporate America and schools and organizations. And I do find in certain groups, there are more clumps of people than others. You know, a lot of educators are, are ones, for example, a lot of people in mental health professions are in the heart. And a lot of people in prison are, people are surprised. People would expect to see the type eight, the boss, the protector would be the most likely type. And um, it's not my, my finding, especially people who are serving long sentences. I think crimes of passion and from the heart, when the, when the heart has been really, really wounded, people respond with you know, really big violence. And so a lot of people in for murder, I have found and to be type fours, type twos. And to me, that makes sense because the pain is so, so deep. And of course mm. there are all the types, no one escapes. And I really like your question, are people negotiating? Yes, all the time. And I think that's not just true in prison, it's true in all the corporate class clients I've ever had. And it's even true about people who come into the work on our public programs with EPP. And I think when it comes right down to it, it is really vulnerable work to pick a type and to start to really look at what we're up to. And as soon as we, like when you said in the very beginning, don't people have pride about their type? I thought that was so sweet. Like in a way, right, we, we are in love with the things that we love about ourselves. But as soon as we see the things that are not so pretty, there's, there's a choice point, right? How much presence, Russ will say, how much presence can we tolerate? And for mm. me in the beginning, not very much. I didn't necessarily not want to be a one, but I didn't want you to tell me that I was angry. I was just annoyed or frustrated or whatever. I picked those nicer words. And those, <laughs> those are words for anger, right? But we negotiate constantly. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Like in for, for in prison populations where they really lean into the work, or is it more how, how I'm sure it, it, I know Alex, obviously, who now is like lives and breathes Enneagram and and started in in prison. But is it more that, and it doesn't not this can extend beyond prisoners. But is it more sort of like oh, like I see myself. Like you're talking about me, and you don't know me, but you're talking about me in a way that feels accurate and true, and that then they start to be like, oh, I get you a little bit better because you're a seven or you're an eight. So do you find that it sort of comes in and then comes out in that way? Completely. Yeah. And I, I had people do all a number of things when, when I meet someone, especially if the whole context is set up for us and the container is the Enneagram, then the whole time I'm really paying attention. I'm always paying attention to people from that lens because I, I find it so useful. I, it's second nature to me almost. And, and so if somebody knows that that's also what we're paying attention to, then they might ask me. And so we had those conversations, but I had someone really early on just say to me in prison, who gave you my file? How do you know those things about me? And I said, I don't know anything about you. I didn't get your file, but you told me you're an eight. And what do you know? Here's the behavior of the eight and just really confrontational. And he wanted to know. And as soon as I met him there like that with the energy that he was looking for, he relaxed. And then we could talk a little bit more deeply. And, and then he, he did go much deeper with the tool and starts. And, and then it's like, oh, you, you don't know me 
But actually, this system is so tried and true that if we can get beyond the objective data that is showing me what, what personality is like so flagrant, then I can, I can have space to make contact with what is really neat under that. And that's the powerful moment, no matter where I'm using the tool, with, with my kids in the kitchen or with the most difficult person around the boardroom table or what have you. And it's so disarming to know I'm not those things. And so yeah. many people have told me, you know, I did that crime, but that's not really who I am. And I will tell you, when I went to go learn the Enneagram and I was in a parenting class, I wanted to say like, I yell at my kids, but I'm a good mom. I'm right. really, I wanted people to know, and we're all just in a prison of our own. And, and we don't know how, and we some, sometimes don't even know that we are until we start to see it on the map. Mm. I love that. Just so the Enneagram as a symbol is ancient, right? And Gurdjieff sort of danced the Enneagram, but he didn't develop the psychological system. That was Naranjo, no, right? In that like, was in much the 60s, later. Right? Yes. Much, much later. It's a relatively so new system. Right. The symbol itself is ancient, just like you say. It goes all the way back to antiquity. It's the, the law of one, three, and seven that are represented on the symbol that we could talk for hours and hours on. And then the Enneagram, the, the topology, the modern psychology was overlaid on that and that was by Ostra Ichazo, who was Ostra. studying in a inner work school in South America under Gurdjieff. And he was the one that put the sim, sim, symbol together with modern psychology, like you said. And so I think those two things have to unite in, in order for this deeper work that we're talking about to actually take place. Because, you know, the law of one is a circle, but actually it's a spiral and we're, uh, we're always changing, which is what the law of seven is about. We're either spiraling up as a virtuous you know, circle or we're spiraling down in a vicious cycle. And so when we bring those two together, we can start to see that we all have this, this divine essence, who we are, but we also come differentiated. We are also on this whole spectrum of, of how we're different. So it is so, so complex and, and actually also so simple all at once. Yeah. No, it's such a, it's a mystical I, idea, you know, and obviously I think any um, Myers-Briggs is based on Young, right? And I can't I, speak I think too it's- much about Myers-Briggs, but I, as I have taken it, I, I know I could probably come up with the letters for me. What I, I know is really different is that Myers-Briggs is, is giving us sort of these behavioral things that we do. So in that way, a topology is, is helpful. What differentiates the Enneagram from all the other personality tools is that it helps to understand and really uncover and drill down into the motivation of why are we doing what we are doing? So it's that why before the what, and that part is not like anything else I've ever found. So what do you think, like, what is your sort of psycho-spiritual, do you have any sort of faith around the Enneagram in terms of where it came from, like, and who was downloading it, if that makes sense? Like, it's not as, I think of, Myers-Briggs is something that businesses use, right, to like code employees. I like Myers-Briggs too. I don't know that much about it. But but when you think about something like the Enneagram and then even the passions and their relationship to the cardinal sins, like these are all concepts that have been, as you said, they've been filtering through consciousness since antiquity. Like we've been playing with versions of this in these modern psychological systems all over the globe in lots of different ways. And now it's obviously been synthesized. But what do you do you do you attach it to anything larger, if that makes sense? Oh, like to well, some I'm... divine plan? <laughs> 
I mean, I'm waiting to read your book about all of this, I, I think, and I can see where you're going. I, I remember teaching very, very early on when I had just certified as a teacher with Dr. David Daniels and at the East West Bookshop in Mountain View, which I'm not even sure it's still there. And someone in the audience asked, do we come back as the same type each time? And I was so, like, I didn't know David too well at that point. I didn't know what he was going to answer. And I think I, I ended up feeling that one. And I, I feel like I've been working on these issues for a very, very long time. And I, I am a very spiritual person. I think the Enneagram is, is completely a spiritual tool. If you, when you get into it, right, it starts, we start to have, be invited into answering these very esoteric questions about what is the what's the the whole cosmic joke is that we think that we are we take ourselves to be these things right so yes to all that you're in, you know musing about and inviting and the how or what i can't pretend to know i'm not even yeah. someone who's qualified i think to even be venturing a guess but i i do know that every conversation that i'm in that where people drop in and down below the personality is a sacred one and yeah. that's that's what that's what we're being invited into i think on the planet. That's what we're all here for. Yeah. No, it feels like we're being, as you said, dropped in. I like that. Like on a circle, there's some divine plan or architecture for the way that we need to each show up and bring our gifts to bear. And so I like the Enneagram as a roadmap for that of this is, this is who you are at, or this is an essential guiding GPS system for you. Yes. And how do you I don't even want to say maximize, but like, how do you use that to navigate and do what you're here to do? I think right. it's a powerful tool. And I think for anyone who's just like stepping, stepping their you know big toe in the pool, we don't have to overcomplicate it. It is really a tool that's meant to be coupled with a mindful mindfulness practice, some way of just regularly getting back into contact with ourselves. And that's all that's required. We have everything we need inside of us. And there's nothing really we have to do except for to remember who we've always been. I love the Enneagram and I particularly love Susan's warm, loving, empathic take on it, which mirrors I think my own I really do think it's not only fascinating but so stunning to think about each other in that way and to imagine again this might be my type one idealist personality or essence but this belief or faith I guess I would say that I have that everyone could live up to their highest potential. And I think the Enneagram fully expressed for each of us is a map to that. And I want to live in a world where we're all balanced and living in our highest selves. And I believe it's essential, incumbent, that we all live up to our potential in that way. I think the earth requires it. I think our hurt society requires it and I think that we personally that's our that's the greatest dream that we have for ourselves um, it's what we I think aspire to every day and as for anger my particular passion I have a lot to say about that and maybe we'll save that for another conversation down the road thanks for listening
Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.